Here's a taste of what's to come on this episode of the Beaver Tales podcast. One of my good friends had a motorhome, and so we would use her parents' motorhome to take us on our golf trips because our budget was pretty slim. You know, I didn't really have anything to go by, except now in hindsight, I look back and I think the whole thing is actually kind of funny. That's just one teaser of what's coming up on the podcast. First, I'd like to mention Convoy of Hope. I'm mentioning this charity because they're one of the premier disaster relief organizations. So whenever a natural disaster, whatever it may be, happens, you know that Convoy of Hope is going to be on the ground providing much needed resources. And they've got lots of initiatives all over the world in a variety of areas. You can learn more about why Convoy of Hope is such a great place to donate to. Their website is convoyofhope.org. And please check out the show description for a link there. And speaking of this episode of the podcast, let's get right to it. This is the Beaver Tales podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Welcome once again, everybody. This is the Beaver Tales podcast. I chat with former Oregon State student athletes to hear what it was like to compete for the Beavers, what they did once their college career ended, the things they've learned, the lessons they've experienced and everything in between. It's my first golfer on the podcast today. There's a few sports that unfortunately I've not yet represented on this podcast, trying to cover all my bases, if you will. And so today, representing the women's golf team from 1980 to 82, Susan Christ joins me on the podcast. She was Susan Baines at the time she was competing for Oregon State. She's gone on to work in the employer relations industry, kind of the job market of she worked for Monster.com and now works actually for Oregon State in the College of Business. She's based up in the Portland area, and she's the assistant director of employer relations. So it kind of brought me back to what it felt like to talk to an academic advisor, and they're giving me advice, and you got to prepare for this and expect this and get this experience and reach out to this employee or be prepared for this or that sort of thing. And it's and it pushes you a little bit, but it's really good to talk with people who know what they're about, know the ins and outs, and they've been through it before. So I enjoyed talking with Susan. So let's jump right in. Here is Susan Christ, the latest episode of the Beaver Tales podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Let's go first with your time at Oregon State and your memories on the golf team. Tell me about how you first came to play golf at Oregon State, your story of just coming to OSU to begin with. Well, you know, it's interesting. So I was a junior golfer. I mean, my family, that's what we did is we we played golf. And so, um, and I played high school golf and my choices were Oregon or Oregon State because they had a golf team. And so I ended up coming to, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure if Oregon at the time even had a golf team, but Oregon State did. And so I think that that was one of the reasons why I chose I chose that school and um, a lot of my friends who I had played junior golf with, who I'd grown up in the, in the kind of junior golf world were playing at Oregon State. So that was a draw as well. Gotcha. And what high school was it that you went to? I went to Beaverton. Beaverton. All right. Go Beavers. Same as my mom, actually. You're always a beaver. <laughs> That's great. So once you 
came to Oregon State, what were some of the most notable moments, some of the surprises, maybe a story you remember from playing golf at Oregon State, a story that you recall reminisce with uh, teammates or old friends from college? Uh, what's something that was kind of notable about your time at Oregon State? Well, I, you know, like I said, it, it was it was really nice because a lot of my teammates were friends and people that I knew from the golf world as a junior. And one of my good friends, Becky Bolt, her parents were so lovely and had a motorhome. And so we would use her parents' motorhome to take us on our golf trips because our budget was pretty slim. You know, I didn't really have anything to go by except now I, in hindsight, I look back and I think the whole thing is actually kind of funny um, because of, you know, the big budgets that, that they have today. But we um, would drive in her motorhome and go on these um, tournaments and our coach would drive. And um, one of uh, one of, um, notable was playing at Stanford and playing, um, playing in a Pac-12 Pac um, conference tournament at Stanford on that course. That was, a, that was a pretty big deal. Mm. Uh, it was pretty funny to, to use the motor home and for the team to just say, all right, well, that's an option. Let's, let's just go do it. I'm not sure how easy that would be to, to write that off and have a, a D1 program to just use a player's motor home these days. What would you have done had you not had the motor home available? Um, I don't know. Probably not gone. <laughs> um, so that's, that's what we did. We used like the golf bags from the team before and like the uniforms were from the years before. And so the clothing, like we just was really bootstrapped. That was one of the things I was going to touch on is this wasn't the most lavish of lifestyles you're living with the golf team. And, and those are a couple of examples. Was there any other either example or a moment where it kind of hit you? Oh, we're really just in this for the golf and not because we're getting these endorsement deals or you know, apparel companies coming after us. Was there anything else that stood out that kind of exemplified you're just you're just in it for the golf and not anything more than that? Well, and, and that's pretty much, you know, all it always was. Um, and it was, you know, we had, you know, some, some good players and you had to be, you know, we had a traveling squad and so you had to be within like the top five to go and so not everybody got to go and so it was you know important that you would qualify and get to go but we were always we were pretty focused it's interesting just because I, I think back though like on technology of like you know equipment how it was then and how it is today and I think I'm a better golfer today than I was back in college just because of equipment and technology and lessons yeah that is pretty interesting. Imagine how many basketball players from your era are better basketball players now than they were in college. Well, none is, is the answer, but, but you are better. That is, that is pretty impressive. One of the things that I've heard recently that I think Don Shockley and John Rehorn, Rehorn have talked about is there's even software. Yeah, great coaches at Oregon State. Uh, there's an app that they can basically track the scores as the meet's going on, as the golfers are performing through hole four, five, six, all the way through. Back then, that that did not exist. You were not tracking on a smartphone what your teammate was doing three holes ahead of you or whatever it may be. So I'm guessing you were just writing it down on paper or how did, how did that go back then? You know, and it's funny because I remember when we played in a, in a tournament in the San Francisco Bay Area and our scores, I might have told you this before, our scores were, were really bad. And we had some friends on the barometer 
who wrote for the sports. And I remember our sport our scores were, were not were not good. And I remember us calling and like begging to not put our scores in here. <laughs> please don't put please just don't put them in this time because like we were like we did not play well. <laughs> no, it's not funny. Yeah. Did they did they comply or did they say, ah, we gotta comply? They did comply. We called in a favor and we just didn't want the scores in. So they, they left them out. That that's very nice of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how did you kind of briefly alluded to the technology and equipment that's made you a better golfer today, but that is pretty impressive to, to legitimately, I mean, if you, I mean, golf is a pretty quantitative sport. You can just compare, well, I used to shoot this amount and now I shoot, you know, two fewer on average. So how has your golfing prowess gone the trajectory of your average score and what a normal day looks like for you on the course and uh, you know, how, how much better are you and why is that since you actually were a D1 athlete at Oregon State? You know, it, it's interesting because hindsight has such perspective for me. I don't really even think I even understood, like, I think I have more appreciation that I played on the golf team now than I did when I did it. Because I, because I do think that that is, that's pretty remarkable playing a D1 sport, but I don't think I, you know, I was, 18 years old and I don't think I really even understood the whole perspective and I had you know I also was juggling a lot um, um, when I was in college I um, was a journalism major I lived in the sorority I had a job I mean I, I was balancing a lot and, and and honestly too I didn't have a car when I was um, um, in Corvallis my first two years so I always had to bum a ride from another person on the team just to get to practice to go to go hit balls and to go meet up with the team and so so I had I had some challenges and it's interesting because I am pretty well connected with the women players on the team today and um, have spoken with them in depth about their experience on the team and um, one of them Nicole Schroeder said to me she said you know what I've learned with golf is like you can just do you know, two things really well when you're at school. You can go to school and play a sport, but if you throw in a job or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or something else, she said, it's just a lot to manage with, with the stress. And I think that that's why I only lasted two years. It was just, it was just a lot. It was a lot to do, um, to do, to do well. All right. So today, fast forward to answer the question, you know, then I got out of college and I was a mom and raised kids and you know I, I literally did not play golf for for many years I was you know on Mother's Day or Father's Day I would get a you know get out of jail free card and I could go play golf but it was just pretty you know, as a mom and working and um so my game was was um was not good at all but then as circumstance would have it I then ended up getting divorced and I didn't have my children every other weekend. And as I used to call it, I got to play guilt-free golf. <laughs> and um, I could, you know, focus more on golf. And I think I just slowly, progressively got better. And other things, um, like it just, it is now literally like my number one hobby. Mm. Yeah. 
especially a thing like golf or other hobbies. I know I hated piano growing up, but I remember playing some piano a couple of years ago. Um, and it, it kind of, it helped in not just a, a physical way of this is a hobby I'm doing, but something to just kind of relax my mind. I was, I was living overseas and it just kind of made me feel more at home. It was something just to do to remind me of what, you know, childhood in America was like. And so a hobby like that, that you can do for a long time, sometimes it's not just a fun thing to do, but something that can help you mentally or, or relax emotionally. It's kind of a release. Have you, have you felt golf bring that to you over the years? really look at golf as a release it's interesting I look at it as um, because I always walk I look at it as exercise and I also look at it as beauty and being out in nature and I really enjoy playing golf courses that I've never played before I kind of keep if people collect like baseball parks I like to collect golf courses and I love playing I love playing like where majors have been played um, I like to check those off pristine golf courses but we've played quite a few, so it's been nice. Do you have a favorite that you've played at? Well, lucky enough, I ha well, I have been able to. I got to play Cypress Point. I've played um, Pebble Beach. I've played Harbor Town. I've played Torrey Pines. I've played TPC Sawgrass, and I've played Fiola. So quite a few. That's pretty amazing. So that kind of shows a little bit of what you've been in golf at Oregon State, and then pass in. Let's talk a little bit more about career and what you were doing academically and professionally post-college and you definitely were a very motivated person it seems you were not one to slack off in college if anything you were overburdened by all the activities you had what were you growing in at that time that the passions you were developing uh, the goals you had maybe in journalism at first and and then going into the field that you're in now what was kind of your career arc as you were closing at Oregon State in your early years following OSU so when I was at Oregon State and I uh, was a reporter and a photographer on the barometer, I really enjoyed it and had a couple of faculty that like were big supporters um, and a big fans of mine, which, which were wonderful. I always wanted to go maybe move up a little farther and I never had enough, enough confidence. And in my role today at Oregon State, getting to be, you know, facing with students, I always encourage them to push themselves because that's one of my woulda, coulda, shouldas that I didn't do. I never like went abroad or um, like kind of the career path at the time when I was in college was to go work on a little like like little you know newspaper at the coast or in Spokane or like in Walla Walla. That would have been the next step. You know, you know, at the time it would have been a big deal to go work for like Oregonian, but you have to, you know, take steps to get there. And I didn't have the confidence to kind of leave my little hometown of Portland and go, you know, just start off new. And that's probably um, one of my biggest regrets. And I always talk to our students about, you know, pushing yourself. And even if you don't feel comfortable, to go do that because it's made I think it would have been amazing to see the different trajectory and who I, because I know that the, when people have experiences like that, like you mentioned, you lived abroad, I'm sure that that made you a different person. For sure. Both of my boys, I have two boys and one of my, one of my greatest accomplishments with my two sons, is they, they went to Linfield, is getting them through college, out of the house and off the payroll. 
And one lives in Charleston and one lives in San Diego and they both picked up roots and I'm enjoying watching who they are becoming since they have left their hometown. Mm. Yeah. That's what you would want to see out, out of a parent is seeing your kids take on a, a life of their own, passions of their own. And I miss you know, them. Selfishly, I wish they still lived here, but I couldn't be prouder. Right. Do you see a little bit of a parallel now with in employer relations and Oregon State College of Business? You know, you're, you're interacting with a lot of students and, and people who are going through the same phases as your own kids did and trying to build their roots and move on to wherever they're at. Um, what are some of the things that you've most commonly given advice to the things that you've seen make them successful? And then you're trying to help other people kind of follow that same route. So what's some of the advice that you most commonly give to potential new employees? Well, that's such a great question is I talk to them about managing expectations and that it's so important that when they move, we call it moving from campus to career, that that job that they get right out of college is not gonna necessarily be your dream job. That you're gonna need to um, skin your knees a little bit. And I would, it's, it's interesting because I'll talk to these students and they'll be juniors or something else. And so what are your, you know, what are your aspirations? Well, I wanna go work in sports marketing. Yeah. You, yeah, I'd love to go work for Columbia, Adidas, or Nike. And I'm like, yeah, you and the rest of the world. Like, <laughs> so you can definitely have that dream, but I want to encourage you to go try and, you know, try other things out to get you to that place. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this interview on the Beaver Tales podcast. I want to interrupt real quick to give an update on a new project. Coming up later this year, I'll be unveiling a full season's worth of sports documentaries related to Oregon State athletics. These audio documentaries will give you a deeper look at some of the most classic Beaver moments, and the first season will center around the 2018 Beaver baseball team. I've already interviewed about a dozen players and coaches from that team, as well as people not affiliated with OSU that'll give you a new perspective on that championship squad. That team, it's like there was a constant level of greatness that was to be upheld. Those are legends who were on that 2018 team. I mean, that many first rounders in the same lineup. Whether we won the national championship or not, I was always gonna love those guys. Again, this project will come out hopefully later this calendar year. I'll give you more information about a release date and other info as well, right here on future episodes of the Beaver Tales podcast. All right, back to the interview. Are you usually working with the students first off and then also connecting them? I'm sure you have some contacts with businesses and potential employers. What's kind of your day-to-day your -day operation and how you fulfill your role at Oregon State? So I, I'm the Assistant Director of Employer Relations with Oregon State, and I've been in this role for about two and a half years. And really, I am the employer-facing side. I have a team that I work with at the Career Success Center who are more of the student facing. And so I am out in the field talking to employers and encouraging them to come to campus and engage with our students in different ways, be it career fairs, be it speakers. I, we did, a, uh, so great. We did a case competition for our um, third year students. It was required curriculum where they worked on cases as teams. It's, it's really quite interesting. It was all, it was this case study by Harvard that was about vaping and the whole, that's a whole ethical, like, 
a whole ethical situation about you know health issues and um, revenue and the way that they were branded in the um, in the market. And so, in their case competition, um, I then went out to the field and found like 20, 23 judges that were all employers to come in and help our students. And it was just really impactful. And I was very strategic about this. And my asks went out to employers that um, were actually looking for students. So it was this, it was like a win for them and a win for the students. Interesting. So how, how did they, how did that actual event work with the judges? How did that go? Oh, great. Um, and um, so I've gotten to be a part of it for the last two years. Last year, it was on campus in Austin Hall. And then this year, we did it via Zoom. And in some ways, I think that the Zoom was just, it opened it up deeper where we had um, employers and we even had some alumni that, um, that helped coach. And because it was virtual, we were able to engage people that weren't necessarily, um, like we had somebody from Boston who, who um, was a coach. We had people from Seattle. I think we even had somebody from overseas that was able to log in. And because they didn't have to physically be on campus, we got to open it up, um, we, we got to open it up even wider. Wow, so was it the students, uh, what was their role? I mean, you said the topic was vaping and what did they do to get judged on and how did they yeah, do so it? The students put together like a seven minute PowerPoint presentation where they worked on a team of like, you know, five people. And each of the students had like a, like one of them had to do an introduction. One of them had to talk about like health issues. One of them had to talk about marketing. One of them had to come up with a new, um, a new way to, um, to reach out to the audience. So they had all these, these, these different assignments and then they had to put it all together. And here's what I thought was so interesting is in talking like sidebar with some of the students, they would, they're getting these, they're getting these really first world, like they're getting these real world experiences about life. And one of them like would pull me aside and say, God, this is so frustrating. You know, one of my teammates hasn't shown up, you know, hasn't shown up to a meeting and they haven't, they haven't done their part. Or um, I don't, you know, I'm not really liking the direction that this is going. And I'm like, welcome to the world of work. <laughs> this is like, this is, this is life. Like, you know, this is how how work is going to be where you um, will start one of your jobs and you're not going to get along with everybody or somebody isn't going to be doing their piece. And, you know, I always tell these, these, um, these students, uh, my number one advice for them is when they start their first job is to show up 15 minutes early and have already eaten breakfast. They're, you know, you're ready to go. And they're like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. It's just that little thing, you know, like be on time and don't need like you don't have to go get your coffee. That's a that's a good that's good advice. I like that. Yeah. Did you ever have a moment where you had to wake up like that, where you ha hadn't eaten breakfast on a first day or something, or how you learned that lesson yourself? You know, it's interesting. I think I was always taught a pretty good. I had a pretty good work ethic from my my parents. Um, I was pretty pretty punctual. Um, and I'm not perfect, but uh, 
just it's just those things because prior to my time um, at Oregon State, I spent 14 years at Monster in technology, helping companies find talent. And then prior to that, I was um, a staffing recruiter for five years. So like on the front lines, placing people and would watch and see like, you know, you have an appointment and you're ready to place somebody and they wouldn't show up and you're like, you know, so I've seen it and felt it. Right. In Monster in particular, I mean, you started there 2004. So the, uh, this is a big, uh, kind of a broad question, maybe hard to pin down, but in the industry of, you know, I'm not even sure what to really call it, employer relations or, you know, online classifieds, whatever, you know, role monster.com plays in the grand scheme of job hiring. How much has that changed from when you started there to 14 years later when you left? So, so much changed. And it's interesting because when I started there, they were like the, they were like the, the company and basically pioneered online recruiting and we were like the, you know, the big dog and um, just a great product and um, we were a, a publicly traded company, great stock price, did well, leading edge, cutting edge and I worked with just some of the best and brightest and very smart people. Um, you know, a lot of 20 and 30 year olds in Birkenstocks that had, you know, masters, PhDs, just a lot of technology, great company. And then like LinkedIn and career, career builder and all these other competing companies started clicking, clicking at our heels. And, um, we just never, never could, could keep up. And, you know, it was, it's kind of sad because I see then the company got acquired, um, and purchased by, um, uh, one of the largest um, staffing companies called Ronstad, and then they did a lot of layoffs and multiple rounds of layoffs, and the technology is just really sort of hanging by a thread, and there are definitely other leaders, and now there's aggregators that just go out, and they, like in Indeed, where they just, the technology goes out and hooks all the jobs and brings them back, and it's just a, a very different space, very different right. What do you think is the next step on on what you see in the trends or maybe what it's looking like now will just kind of continue? I mean, when you go on Indeed and these other sites, there's just a lot of job opportunities. It seems pretty straightforward, pretty well done. Do, do you see any big shifts in the future or things where you're like, oh, so, someone hasn't touched on this area. And then, you know, once some business gets to this thing, they'll really push the edge or I don't know, is there anything big that comes to mind for the, for the future? Well, you know, the, you know, all the hot topics right now are diversity, um, uh, diversity inclusion. We have things with, um, you know, finding um, people in military. I think there's a lot of niche and boutique sites that um, are, trying to make their play and some are good, some are saturated. Um, so I think there's lots of ideas out there. Um, you know, I, I don't think I know the answer to that, but I'm sure that there are a lot of people thinking about that right now. Really nice to hear from Susan Christ on this podcast. I'm grateful to get our first golfer 
on uh, any episode of this podcast to hear what playing golf in the 80s was like and her career trajectory and the things she's learned. So that was really great. Also, don't forget, check out the link in the podcast. Learn more about the Beaver Tales documentaries. Oregon State fans will love this one. Please share that with a friend or this podcast. Leave a review in whatever uh, podcast platform you're listening on. That would be much appreciated. There was one last thing Susan wanted to add at the end of our conversation. One thing she couldn't leave out of this conversation, and I liked it as well. So I'm going to let Susan play us out and have her thoughts end this podcast. So one final little portion here on uh, this episode. I feel like the game of golf, a couple of other things, but the game of golf, you can really see a person's character when you play golf with them. And if you, um, which I found, is that if you play golf with a person and they maybe cheat or they move their ball or they have less than stellar ethic, that always seemed to follow them out in the real world. So how they play, how they lead their life on the golf course seem to always match their life off the golf course. You learn a lot by a person by playing golf. And I also think too, by being a woman and playing golf, which at times can be more of a man's world, is interesting too. And it's it's amazing how I think sometimes there can be some, you know, men will think, oh, I'm playing with a woman. And, and then when you're decent, then all of a sudden you get a different level of respect. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Show somebody up and, oh, you can you can drive the ball pretty well off the tee. Or, oh, you yeah, because I play from the men's tees. Okay. And so, and I had people say, well, why are you playing there? Because I do. Because <laughs> I can and I want to. <laughs> it's more fun. It's challenging. Yeah. Because yeah. I hit the ball far. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great sport. All right. Thanks again to Susan for joining me. Until next time, everybody, good night and go be.